this is The Guardian. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, coming to you from Gadigal Land, and this is The Full Story. Should you be able to detain someone for a future crime they may never commit? In Australia, the law says yes in certain circumstances. If the government suspects a detainee who's served their sentence might commit a terrorist offence in the future, they can be locked up indefinitely. These anti-terror laws have triggered concerns around human rights. And recently, it's also been revealed there are serious flaws with the way the government decides that someone is a threat. Today, Australia's flawed anti-terror powers. It's Monday, the 8th of May. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I've been reporting on the story of Abdul Nasser Ben Breaker. He's 63 and is currently being held in a specially constructed unit in Barwon Prison. He's a convicted terrorist. Abdul Nasser Ben Breaker is considered by some to be the godfather of Islamic jihadism in Victoria for his role in planning a series of terrorist attacks across Melbourne and Sydney. In 2005, Ben Breaker was taken into custody on charges relating to terrorism. The court found he'd praised Osama bin Laden and those responsible for terror attacks in London and Madrid and they found he'd encouraged training in the use of knives to maim non-believers, and that he told a follower to not just kill a few people, but do a big thing. At one point, he spoke about killing a 1,000 people to coerce the government into withdrawing Australian troops from Muslim countries. And for his crimes, he was sentenced to 15 years in prison, with a minimum term of 12 years. In 2020, the day of his release arrived, but instead of freedom. Now, uh, plenty of news happening this morning. The High Court has ruled notorious convicted terrorist Abdul Nasser Ben Bricker can be detained beyond his 15 year sentence for terrorism. Ben Bricker became the first person held under what is called a continuing detention order or CDO. These CDOs were introduced in 2016 and are designed to allow for the continuing detention of terrorist offenders where a court is satisfied they pose an unacceptable risk of committing a serious terrorism offence if released into the community at the end of their custodial sentence. 
So authorities argue that Ben Breaker remains a threat by virtue of his influence over others. He's said to have pledged allegiance to Islamic State while he was in custody and he was accused of following al-Qaeda at the time of his arrest. And he was accused of having contact in jail with several people linked to extremism. Under his current order, Ben Breaker can be held until December 2023. But these orders can be repeatedly renewed, which means they could be used to detain a person indefinitely. Hi, Chris. Hi, Laura. Hey, Nino. Hey, Laura. So, Nino Bucci, Christopher Norse, you've both been reporting on Australia's powerful anti-terror laws. Why? We've known for quite a while now that we're approaching a period of time where a lot of convicted terror offenders were going to be due for release back into the community. Nino Bucci is a reporter for Guardian Australia. And there's been various discussions about how we do that. What had concerned me really was, okay, well, Australia has these really extraordinary powers to to try and prevent uh, terror offences. Chris Norse is a reporter for Guardian Australia. How, how are they being used and are they being used in a way that's sort of both fair to the people who are being targeted with them and, and also lawful? Right. One of the key questions of fairness, I imagine, is around whether you should be able to detain someone after they've finished their sentence for a crime that that they may never commit. Is this normal for a democratic nation to do this, Chris? Uh, The short answer is is no. Australia, in in this respect, is an outlier, uh, particularly among sort of comparable Western nations like the UK and, and New Zealand, which despite having really high-profile terror attacks in both of those places have not um, gone down this road of detaining people to prevent future terror offences. So in a recent report, uh, the Independent National Security Legislation Monitor, uh, Grant Donaldson, who is sort of oversees and, and scrutinises uh, national security law in Australia, he said that Australia was sort of a, a world a world leader or an exception or an outlier in pursuing laws of this type. So, Nino, how does this work? How do we assess whether someone is likely to commit a crime in the future? Some of the things I consider are psychological reports, reports from prison authorities and prison intelligence, so, you know, literally going through the phone records or the notes that people have been keeping themselves in prison, who they associate with in prison, but also through the use of tools and one of these tools, which is kind of at, at the heart of this story in our reporting, is called the Violent Extremes and Risk Assessment 2 Revised or VERA 2R tool. And basically what that does is provide a, an assessment, I guess, of what somebody's risk is by inputting various values into it and kind of spitting out a score at the end. Mm. The VERA 2R is basically one of the tools the government uses, either federally or the New South Wales government, to prove that a person should be held in detention for longer or released into the community, but only under very strict conditions. Mm. So there's continuing detention orders or CDOs, which are what is being used to hold NASA Benbrika, and then there's ESOs or extended supervision orders, which are used to put a 
set of conditions on a person before they're released into the community, which allow for their monitoring or control over how many phones they can have or email addresses and are basically used to limit the risk that person's said to pose. And the problem with that is that this particular tool has been found to have some very serious flaws in an internal report that the government itself commissioned. Tell me about that. What, what is wrong with Vera 2R and how did they discover this? So the Vera 2R effectively was found by somebody who independently assessed it to have serious flaws. It had a lack of evidence underpinning it and there were serious implications for its validity and reliability. We don't have this internal report. We've not seen it. There's only been very limited sections of it that are released, so it's hard to know quite how much detail it went into about the problems with the Vera 2R. But Mm. basically, the mere fact of that report existing and the government knowing it existed and that there were serious problems with this tool called into question every case in which that tool had been used. What did the government do with this report, Chris? Well, the government effectively sat on it. Uh, So, you know, it receives this report in May 2020. We know that. It doesn't tell anybody that it has this report outside of government. It continues to use this tool in court cases um, to justify continuing detention orders and and extended supervision orders, despite knowing of the flaws of Vera2R. And in fact, the first we hear about it is in November 2022 mm. when Grant Donaldson, the, the National Security Watchdog who we mentioned earlier, was conducting an inquiry into these laws. So what happened was, you know, the defence lawyers who were representing people who were being targeted with these extraordinary powers were not told of, of the government's knowledge that the Vera2R tool was flawed. You know, legal aid lawyers were left oblivious And the flaws were also not disclosed to the New South Wales government for quite some time, despite the Commonwealth knowing that New South Wales was also using this risk assessment tool to justify post-sentence orders in in its own jurisdiction. Wow. So, you know, it, it was quite an extraordinary failure to disclose. And particularly when you consider that, you know, the government here, the Commonwealth, is supposed to act as what is known as a model litigant. So... It has to behave in courts in a model fashion and there are really strict rules around disclosing relevant material to defendants in in cases like this and I think it's quite arguable that the Commonwealth has has failed to meet those obligations. How many people were assessed for a threat of extremism using a tool that the federal government knew was flawed? So it's hard to quantify exactly, but what we do know is that it was used in at least 25 cases um, where legal aid was involved, and we think that legal aid was involved in the majority of cases of this kind. But it's important to say that it's unclear out of that 25 how many were actually subject to stricter orders or to being you know, held in detention even longer because of the Vera 2R. But from lawyers we've spoken to who's been involved in cases like this, that threat assessment is the key part of cases, particularly in New South Wales, that justify whether someone's going to be held in detention longer or put on a community order. Are we using these powers where we can test people for extremism and potentially detain them indefinitely 
only on convicted terrorists or could they be used on anyone who comes in contact with the law? Yeah, so as we've sort of been looking into how the Vera 2R tool is used, it became clear that in New South Wales, the way it's used is very different to federally. So whereas in federal cases, it's only used for people that have been convicted of a terror offence, in New South Wales, it's regularly being used for people that are in prison for all different types of offending and not in any way just linked to extremism or terrorism. So, you know, it, it could be people that are in for aggravated burglaries. It could be people that are in for, you know, offences of violence that are not in any way motivated by an extremist kind of ideology. And, you know, we know of one case from 2020 where it was used on an Aboriginal teenager who basically spent, you know, his entire youth in and out of juvenile detention, a lot of petty crime, was in detention on assault charges, uh, nothing to do with terrorism, but was considered to have radicalised in prison and so was put through the Vera 2R to basically assess whether it was safe to release him into the community at the end of his sentence. Now, that particular application by the government for his continuing sort of supervision didn't get up, but it just sort of goes to show, I guess, the way in which a tool originally designed to assess the risk posed by terrorists is now being used as a tool to assess the risk posed by anyone. Could rulings where Vera 2 was used, could all of these rulings now be invalid? What's the process from here now that this has come to light? Now, look, it's hard to say what what this report and the criticisms of Vera 2 are um, mean for the validity of, of rulings of this kind. But what we do know is that lawyers for a lot of these defendants are, are outraged, um, they're furious, and they're, they are looking for a way to remedy what's happened, so to address this non-disclosure from the government. In at least one of the cases that we know of, the Commonwealth has been forced to explain itself effectively to a court to explain why it didn't disclose uh, this report as it should have. The position, certainly in the matter of Ben Breaker, is that his continuing detention order would not have been made if the corner report, so this critical internal report, had been made public at the time the court made that decision. Mm. So they're very clearly saying here that the government's failure to disclose that critical report on the Vera 2R may have cost the liberty of their client. Do we know why the federal government sat on this report and, and kept this a secret? Uh what the federal government has, is saying at the moment is that it's investigating the circumstances around the handling of this corner report and looking into why it wasn't disclosed. You know, the, the National Security Law Watchdog, Grant Donaldson, who we mentioned earlier, I mean, he was quite scathing of, of the failure to disclose this report. He said that, you know, this, on any view it should have been disclosed. It was clearly relevant to these cases and was clearly relevant to the defendants. But more than that, he actually said, you know, there's actually no operationally sensitive information in this report. It was designed to be published and that any claim that there was operationally sensitive information inside this corner report is, is just wrong. Um, so really, there, there doesn't seem to have been any huge barrier to disclosing the report other than, you know, I guess, potential embarrassment for the government and also an, an undermining of, of its use of these laws. 
Next, have Australia's anti-terror laws gone too far? Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. So, Chris and Nino, before the break, we discussed a specific flaw in Australia's anti-terror laws and powers, but I want to step back for a minute and look at when Australia acquired such powerful anti-terror laws. Yeah, I guess it's been incremental since the September 11 attacks in 2001 and we've seen a gradual kind of ratcheting up of various powers around whether it's, you know, as we're talking about here, the continuing detention or supervision of people, whether it's stricter laws around foreign fighters, whether it's laws around, you know, terror financing. There's been all these changes in in terror laws that have kind of occurred very incrementally and more than two decades on, we're now starting to see real-life consequences of that really huge focus on ostensibly making us safer by ratcheting up national security laws and anti-terror laws. The concerns around, you know, the sort of creeping um, nature of some of these terror powers has really come to the fore again recently. We've had this inquiry, which we mentioned earlier, by the um, Independent National Security Legislation Monitor, Grant Donaldson, who is looking at these powers to detain and control people after their sentence. And he said really that he doubted whether anyone knows whether these powers have made anyone safer. He said that they were completely disproportionate to any terror threat that that was faced in Australia. Is Donaldson right there that our anti-terror laws are really disproportionate to the threat of terrorism in Australia? What is the threat of terrorism in Australia right now? Yeah, look, there's a, a really interesting part of Donaldson's report where he looks at the UK context. Um, he says, look, the UK don't have these powers. And, you know, one of the inquiries that their parliament conducted over there looked at actual recidivism rates for terrorist offenders and found that they were actually uniquely low among all crime types. I think the recidivism rate for terror offenders was something like 3%. Mm. So, of course, there's concern, obviously concern about terror attacks, but, you know, you need to sort of temper that by what we know about the data and, and the data shows that you know recidivism rates are, are really low for this offence type but also terrorism in Australia the threat has been deemed by our own intelligence agencies to be not particularly high at the moment late last year ASIO lowered the terrorism threat level from probable to possible ASIO director Mike Burgess did emphasise at that point though that the threat had not entirely evaporated ASIO assesses that Australia remains a potential terrorist target 
but there are fewer extremists with the intention to conduct an attack on shore than there were when we raised the threat level in 2014. He said, you know, possible does not mean negligible. This does not mean the threat is extinguished. Far from it. I mean, the other thing I think that's worth noting there is that not only is the threat lowered, but intelligence agencies themselves are saying that they consider it a lower priority than foreign interference for literally the first time since September 11. Mm. Grant Donaldson, the watchdog, when he was conducting this inquiry and when he released his report in March, he said, you know, there has to be a greater focus on rehabilitation and reintegration. Mm. And that's why the support of bodies like the Law Council um, and other legal groups who say, you know, in principle, supervision orders powers should remain, but they should be drastically overhauled to redirect their focus. So experts essentially believe that rehabilitation is better for someone like Ben Breaker than indefinite detention. Do we know what this detention is like for him? What conditions is he being kept in? Yeah, so in Ben Breaker's case, he says that his detention is actually worse than when he was in prison. He says that through his lawyers that he's effectively being held in isolation in a maximum security setting subject to the same conditions as when he was a sentenced prisoner but with none of the benefits, you know, that you get, including being able to work, being able to educate yourself and and sort of socialise with other inmates. So his lawyers are are saying that he's suffering from various medical conditions that are directly linked to his detention, including inflammatory bowel disease, depression, you know, panic disorders, extensive dermatitis. He's told us in a statement provided by his lawyers that He's like a person swimming in the middle of the ocean and, you know, he looks over there and all he sees is water. I look over here and all I see is water. I don't even know which way is the land anymore or where I'm supposed to be going. Changing terror powers is not a popular thing with the public. Generally, a lot of people do feel safe having strong anti-terror laws. Is it likely that we'll see a push to drop the use of Vera 2R or to, to change the way that we think about these control orders? So, yeah, what we've seen is uh, some really strong recommendations uh, from Grant Donaldson, the the National Security Law Watchdog. So he wants the federal government to scrap uh, continuing detention order powers entirely. Uh, He wants them gone. And that's a recommendation that's got a lot of support from the legal sector, particularly, um, and from human rights groups. He wants to keep extended supervision orders, which we mentioned earlier, but he wants them really radically reformed to to better focus on rehabilitation. So, you know, the government hasn't yet signaled what it will do in response to those recommendations, but as you identify, it is often unpopular to to reform terror laws in a way that seems to weaken them. Uh, So it will be interesting to see which way they go. That was Christopher North and Nina Bucci. You can read their latest reporting on this issue at theguardian.com. And I do recommend Nino's feature, which takes a closer look at Ben Breaker's case, titled A Wicked Problem, How to Deal with Terrorists if They Are Allegedly Still a Risk After Serving Their Sentence. We've linked to that on the Full Story page. This episode was produced by Karishma Luthria, myself and Joe Koning. Sound designed by Joe Koning and Daniel Simo. The executive producer of this episode was Miles Martignoni. I'm Laura Mephiotes. Thanks for listening.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.